Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 25. It goes like this. Abraham married another wife named Keturah. The children she bore him were Zimram, Jackson, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jackson became the first of Sheba, the father of Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's sons were Asherim, Latushim, and Lamimim. Midian's sons were Ephah, Ephar, Enoch, Abida, and Elda. All of these were Keturah's sons. Abraham gave everything he owned to Isaac. To the sons of Abraham's secondary wives, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, sent them away from his son Isaac to live in the east. Abraham lived to the age of 175. Abraham took his last breath and died after a good long life, a content old man, and he was placed with his ancestors. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave in Machpelah, which is in the field of Zohar's son Ephron the Hittite near Mamre. Thus Abraham and his wife Sarah were both buried in the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived in Ber Laharoi. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout the centuries, artists and politicians, ruling bodies, religious organizations, and society writ large has argued over what makes a good life. It's one of our favorite arguments, in fact, I think, as a society. What is it that makes a good life when all is said and done? Is there some sort of scoreboard I could check? Is there a quantitative way that I can decide whether I've lived a good life? Is there a checklist I can check which can determine if what I did lived the correct way? Did I score enough points on the digital scoreboard of life for God to say, well done, good life you lived there? There is some argument amongst scholars that this dichotomy between our desire to live a good life and our realization that we are all mortal is what drives all of our creativity, all of our functionality, all of our desire to create, to make things, to build things. You could say it's at the center of our society, at our, the center of our lives. And everybody has an opinion. Take the poets, for example. Probably the most famous poet of all time when it comes to dealing with death is an Irish poet called Dylan Thomas. He wrote a poem that ends, do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. He had a clear opinion about what made a good life, right? You were supposed to fight till the end of it. Rage against the dying of the light, he says. Emily Dickinson, an American poet, goes in a completely opposite direction. She says, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. It's a peaceful experience, she says, and the one you should expect your entire life. Death will pick you up and carry you along the road. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, on the other hand, um, has a completely another third way to look at it. He says, let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor, and to wait. 
Tennyson argues that our lives in the end is about what we do, how hard we worked and how well we were able to wait for God. And this, all of this didn't end in the 19th century, this obsession with deciding what made a good life. In fact, if you watched American television in the last 10 years, you might be familiar with a show called The Good Life. It's a whole series that takes place in what they think is heaven at the beginning of the series. There's four people and they're in heaven and all of a sudden things start going wrong. And they can't figure out who got to heaven when they shouldn't have. Because whoever it was who shouldn't be in heaven was messing everything up for everybody else. In fact, they find in the middle of the series that there's actually a literal point system. There's a scoreboard and they go to visit God, well, not God, one of the angels who's in charge of who gets into heaven. His name is Michael, <laughs> and it's played by 10 dancing, so you can imagine how ridiculous this gets. They go to visit him, and he literally has a giant scoreboard in his office with names and how many points you've earned over your life, right? Wouldn't that be convenient? You earn points for good behavior, and you lose points for bad behavior, and if you make enough points, you get to go to heaven. And there are some people you can see bouncing up and down across the line, right? Some people are going to make it, some people aren't going to make it. It's one good deed away from making it to heaven. And what they learn is that nobody is good enough to earn enough points to get into heaven. What they thought was heaven is actually purgatory. It's actually the middle place or the bad place. Nobody makes it to heaven, you see, in this digital score system not the only voice in our culture. In the 90s, a, a, a movie came out called The Bucket List. Anybody see it? Yeah? It starred Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. Um, and they were, old, they were old. They had been given um, terminal illnesses. They would be given diagnoses of terminal illnesses. And so as friends, they decided that to live the good life with the last time they had left meant that they had to check off all the things on their list that they'd always wanted to do. And so they completely abandoned their life and their family and their friends, and they rushed around the world accomplishing things, silly things, big things. And when I Googled it, it returned a million suggestions quickly of things that you might need to put on your bucket list. The first site that I clicked on was 10,000 things to put on your bucket list, so you better get busy. And it's not like that's reserved to the, to the, um, to the minds and hearts of people who are aging. Instagram and YouTube influences are built entirely around the idea that if you live the life the way they live, then that is the definition of a good life. So they sell you a story. I'm living the good life because I get to go on an island trip. Look at me in Bora Bora. Or they sell you the story that if you live the perfect life, if you lived the perfect diet, if you just eat the right foods or have the right exercise routine, there's a whole category called thinspo. Can you believe this? It's thinspiration videos where people tell you how they got thin. As if that's how to live a good life. Or Harper's Bazaar, who recently started a celebrity series called What I Eat in a Day that tells you what celebrities eat so maybe you too can be as pretty and as thin as they are. It's all of it a lie. All of this is a lie. It's a myth. It's a summary 
of things that we do in our life as if that's what life is. It's just the things that you do, the steps that you've accomplished, the, the things you've managed to check off your list. And if you've lived long enough or any time at all, you realize that doing stuff is an empty promise. If we rely on the stuff that we do, if we rely on how hard we work or not work, if we have too much fun or not enough fun, as if those are the things that define a good life. That if we're gonna live a good life, we're gonna have a full trophy case that we can show off at the end. That if we've reached a certain level of notoriety or fame or celebrity, or if we've attained a certain societal status, then we've lived a good life. And all of that is a lie. Now, it took Abraham a long time, a long time to figure this out. But eventually, he discovered that accomplishing things, that trying to be the big man on campus, all of that was a myth. He found, in the end, that all of that was an empty promise. When we, when we meet Abraham, he's living what can be qualified as a good life, right? He's got lots of land. He's got family around him. He's clearly got a bunch of possessions because when they go to pack it all up, it takes a while. He's got everything that, there, that he needs to make a good life. He had a family who loved him and would miss him. He was married to a good woman who chose to go with him with, the Bible records, minimal complaining, though I can't imagine that that's how it actually went. And God calls to him and he says, I know you've got this good life going on, but what I want you to do is to leave it. I want you to leave it all behind, except for the stuff that you feel like you need to pack, 12 caravans worth of stuff, and go to this other place where I promise you'll have a good life a better life, where you're going to see people and meet people and, and do cool things, right? It's going to be a place for you to live in, to raise a family and to set down roots. Go, go to this promised land and have a better life. The grass is surely greener in this other pasture. And Abraham, like all people, gets a little squirrely because he doesn't really trust God's promise. So he ends up bumbling around the Middle East for 13 chapters of Genesis. And all he does, really, instead of fulfilling the promise that God gave him, fulfilling the destiny that God had for him, if he'd just gone where God told him to in the first place, is cause trouble. He causes trouble for himself. He causes trouble for his family. My favorite thing that Abraham does, and I still don't understand, is um, they go to this place to Egypt, which is not near the promised land, really, so they got way off route. They go to Egypt, and they meet a king there, and he says, wow, your wife is pretty, and what Abraham does is say, no, she's my sister. Not a good move. Don't do that. And as if he doesn't learn his lesson the first time, he does it again. They meet another king. He says, pretty wife you have there. And he says, no, that's my sister. The guy tries to marry her. They get in trouble, right? All of this because Abraham doesn't trust God's promise. He tries to take it into his own hands. God's not fulfilling this good life promise quickly enough, he says. And so I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it happen myself. And so he takes it into his own hands, he and Sarah, and they say, well, we're not having any children, so we're going to um, have a child with Hagar and bear Ishmael. And in the end, essentially create 10,000 years of warfare 
for which we are still seeing the consequences. None of the things on Abraham's bucket list turn out to be any good for him. None of the things that he puts on his checklist are any good for him because none of those things are what God put on his checklist. Abraham tries to define for himself what a good life looks like. Abraham tries to decide for himself what God's promise for him will be, and in the end, all he does is create trouble and create problems and get farther and farther away from the good life that God promised. And it took him a while. But we see here in chapter 25 that Abraham's life does become good. He dies a content old man. It became good not because of the things he did or the things he had or the possessions that he had or the places that he lived or the places he had traveled. None of those things are considered good in the end. Abraham dies content because he finally learned to trust in God's promise. He had a family with Kara, his second wife, who mourned him. A family that was large and fulfilled the promise of the stars of the sky, just like God had promised, as long as Abraham finally stopped running. In the end, Abraham's son Isaac and Ishmael, who had no good reason to get along, no good reason to like each other, especially Ishmael, put aside their differences and their disagreements long enough to come together and bury their father. It's enough of a reconciliation for God to call it good. And all of this, in the end, is the promise of a fulfilled life that God calls good. So what does Abraham have to do to find this good life? What does Abraham have to accomplish to find this good life? It turns out, not a darn thing. All Abraham had to do was listen, was follow God's promise, was to live into his identity, who God called him to be, who God created Abraham to be. When Abraham stopped trying to be someone else, when Abraham stopped trying to fulfill someone else's promise, Abraham found his good life. Abraham, all he had to do was what God asked him to do, what God needed him to do. And so in the end, what makes a good life is simple and complicated. It's simple because all we have to do is to live into our God-given identity and purpose. All you have to do to be, to think, or to behave is as yourself. That's it. All you have to do is be who God created you to be. Now, that does not mean that you have a license to go around being a jerk. It doesn't mean that you have a license to go around doing whatever it is that you feel like you feel like doing today. That's not God's version of you. That's your version of you. It's not an excuse to live a life that is, well, is devoid of God or devoid of others or put yourself first or is selfishly self-centered. That's not what being you means. It means being the best version of you, the God version of you, the one that God sees when God pictured you, when God made you, when God knitted you together in your mother's womb. God had a plan and a purpose for you, and all you have to do is figure that out. Live into that purpose, which means it's complicated. Because sometimes it takes us our entire lives to figure out what that God version of us looks like. 
You know those people that you meet who seem like they know who they are? Like they've just known who they are their whole life? Those people don't really exist. Not really, not in my experience. All of us make missteps, mistakes. All of us take journeys to Egypt when we're supposed to be going to Israel. It happens. That's part of life. And if we live into our God-given identity, then the journey is the point. It's not to get there in the end. It's not the destination. It's not to live in the promised land for 80 years. It's to be on the journey to discover who it is that we are in God. And so how do we know when we've landed in the right place? How do you know you've made it to the promised land? I don't know. I'll tell you when I figure it out. I can guess that there's some peace when you find the pieces of you that fit. When your puzzle joins together and you can see the picture and things start to make sense, that's what it looks like in the promised land. A place of peace and contentment where you're okay with your mistakes well, you're okay with your bad parts and your good parts. I don't know, maybe it's best summed up in the words of the great country poet Billy Dean. In the 90s, he wrote a song called Only Here for a Little While. It's one of my favorites, and it goes like this. Today I stood singing songs and saying amen, saying goodbye to an old friend who seemed so young. He spent his life working hard to chase a dollar putting off until tomorrow the things he should have done. It made me start thinking, what's the hurry? Why the running? I don't like what I'm becoming. I'm going to change my style. Take my time. And I take it all for granted, because we're only here for a little while. Going to hold who needs holding. Mend what needs mending. Walk what needs walking, though it may mean an extra mile. I'm going to pray what needs praying and say what needs saying, because we're only here for a little while. And that's what living the good life looks like. Living the good life is doing what needs doing, praying what needs praying, and walking on the journey, even if it's an extra mile. Amen.